Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Midtown Scholar Bookstore. My name is Alex Grubaker. I am the manager here at the Scholar. It's a pleasure to welcome you to the bookstore this evening for a timely discussion on the Supreme Court with author David Kaplan and critic Harvey Friedenberg. Before we begin, um, some quick housekeeping as always, and you're going to hear this over and over again over the next month, but uh, we are again hosting the Harrisburg Book Festival this fall from October 11th through October 14th. We're bringing in over a dozen authors across four days. Um, and I always say, as cliche as it, sound, as it sounds, we've curated a lineup that guarantees there will be something for everyone out there. Uh, specifically for this audience, our closing keynote address is with Carol Anderson. Uh, she's written a timely book on the history of voter suppression in America called One Person, No Vote. It is free and open to the public. We have copies available up at the cafe counter. Um, and it was just long listed for the National Book Award just a couple days ago, so um, definitely want to check that out. Uh, so definitely check out our brand new website on the festival. It's uh, hbgbookfest.com for all information on the festivities. Now on to our main show. It is my pleasure to introduce David and Harvey to The Scholar. Harvey Friedenberg has been writing about books since 2005, and then at the time he has written more than 700 reviews for publication. He is a member of the National Book Critics Circle, writes for print publication and websites that include bookreporter.com, shelfawareness.com, Harrisburg Magazine, and the Minneapolis Star Tribune, as well as various literary blogs. He has served on the board of the Dauphin County Library System for 17 years, including two years as its president, and for several years was a member of the selection committee for the One Book, One Community program. He was also a lawyer in his former life. David Kaplan is the former legal affairs editor of Newsweek, where he covered the court for a decade. His other books include The Silicon Boys and The Accidental President. A graduate of Cornell and the U New York University School of Law, he teaches courses in journalism and ethics at NYU. In the most dangerous branch, Kaplan lifts the veil on the Supreme Court. Based on exclusive interviews with the justices and dozens of their law clerks, Kaplan provides fresh details about life behind the scenes at the court. CBS Morning News calls the book fascinating, and the Associated Press says, if Brett Kavanaugh's Supreme Court confirmation hearings have inspired you to dig deeper into the intricacies of the nation's highest court, look no further than a new book devoted to the subject. The most dangerous branch couldn't be better. And with that, please join me in giving a warm Harrisburg welcome to David Kaplan and Harvey Friedenberg. Thanks, Alex. Uh, David, welcome to Harrisburg and the Midtown Scholar. Uh, I've had the uh, pleasure of reading this this book, and I can say uh, both as a book critic and as a uh, recovering lawyer, uh, which David is as well, although uh, I was at it a little bit longer than he was. Uh, it's really an excellent and very timely book. Uh, it's based uh, in significant part on uh, over 165 interviews, including uh, interviews with more than half of the sitting justices of the U.S. Supreme Court and several former justices many law clerks, and many others. So it's a real insider's view uh, about what's going on uh, at the court. And uh, also a, a look at some of the recent uh, high-profile, very controversial cases on issues uh, like uh, gun control, uh, same-sex marriage, voting rights, campaign finance. Uh, so if you really want a, a good look at the contemporary Supreme Court, uh, this is a great place to start. So let me start by asking you this, Dave. It's the premise of your book, which focuses on pretty much on the last 50 years of Supreme Court history, going back to uh, roughly Roe versus Wade in 1973, is that uh, the court, in case after big case, and I'm quoting from uh, your, your book now, acts when it should not, or intervenes purely because it can, something you describe as steady institutional self-aggrandizement. And, when, and as you illustrate with, uh, with some great examples, when it comes to this development, liberal justices and conservative justices are equal opportunity offenders. So would it be possible for you to cite uh, one example from each side, one from the liberal side and one from the conservative side that you think best illustrates the thesis of the book? There's plenty to choose from, um, but I think Roe v. Wade on the one side and Bush v. Gore on the other, and thank you all for coming on a Saturday night. I assume there's lots to do in Harrisburg other than um, come here about the Supreme Court. But I think, as I argue in the book, you can't, you can't necessarily point to a single case where, I, where the trend begins, but I think Roe v. Wade 
is as good a single case if you had to mention one. In Roe, the court didn't have to intervene in this ongoing debate in the country, largely legislative, over what to do with abortion, but they chose to intervene. And, and I should point out at the outset, my own political views on abortion are extremely liberal. Um, but I think you should, I think the place to achieve those victories are in Congress and at the state court level and not at the Supreme Court. It's a question of how you win at the game. There are all kinds of reasons which maybe we'll get into on why I think that's the case, beginning with the Constitution, but, but there are reasons of real politic uh, that I argue uh, are important. And one of them, of course, is if you look at Bush v. Gore, completely different case, obviously, than Roe v. Wade, but you could argue that they're bookends. One is a liberal decision, removing a vital question from the political branches of government. The other is a conservative decision, removing a vital question, who will be president from the political branches. Now, you know, I love my children equally and I, I dislike my cases equally. I think Bush v. Gore was the worst of the decisions because I, I, the Constitution I, I, explicitly yeah. stated that if there's a disputed presidential election, go across the street. Congress ought to be resolving that. But I think you I, called I, so it, I would mention those two cases, but we can get into others. Well, you called it a judicial disgrace. I think that was your, your term for Bush versus Gore. I, I was understating the matter. Okay. I mean, I, I think that you, you could argue Bush v. Gore is the worst decision of the court since Dred Scott, the decision that helped uh, lead mm -hmm. to the Civil War. Um, but I, can I prove to you that Bush v. Gore would not have happened without Roe v. Wade? Of course not. Mm -hmm. It's not a straight line. Uh, but I, I think you can argue that the court's aggrandizement, the court's mm -hmm. arrogance over the years helps enable future aggrandizement. And it's reached the point where nobody much questions that role of the court. If you watch the Kavanaugh hearings, as I was sentenced to do, uh, <laughs> you heard a lot of questions about documents, abortion, gun control, whatever, a presidential power. There wasn't a single question asked from either side asking the nominee, what is the court's role? When should it not intervene? Can you think of some, any cases historically where the court did well to stay out. And the reason that question isn't asked is because it's not on anybody's mind. When, when, when Anthony Scalia died in February 2016, you heard immediate cries from both candidates, Trump and, and Clinton, and, and some of the other Republicans running, that the next seat, the next justice could well determine American social policy for a generation or longer. And that might be true, given the court's ascendancy, but why did everyone on both sides of the aisle accept that premise, and do you want to live in a country where one justice determines so much social policy? Yeah. I, I'm not arguing that the political branches necessarily do well all the time. Look who's president. You know, consider who your local congressperson is. But in the long run, I think it's a, a more legitimate system and a better system if you leave it to those branches rather than nine unelected, yeah. unaccountable justices. There's a, a uh, law professor by the name of Alexander Bickel whose spirit, I think, sort of hovers over this book, and it seems like you're, you're very much in sympathy with his views. Could you talk a little bit about what his judicial philosophy was? And he passed away a long time ago, about 40 years or so ago. Uh, why, why do you think uh, his philosophy of, of when the court should intervene or should not intervene is so, uh, is so vital and should be, should be followed today? Bigel was a Yale law professor. He's probably best known for arguing the Pentagon Papers case for the New York Times. But, and he was a former Supreme Court clerk. He was a liberal by small c constitution, but he wrote a famous book in the early 1960s, very influential, called The Least Dangerous Branch. My book is a play on that. His title was a playoff of what Alexander Hamilton, the, the hip-hop guy, um, wrote in the Federalist Papers when he said that 
the Supreme Court would be the least dangerous branch in the government because whereas the president controlled the sword and Congress controlled the purse, the only way the Supreme Court could accomplish anything was by reason, by the power uh, of, of its reasoning, mm -hmm. by prestige. It couldn't enforce its decision. And, and Bickle wrote his book in the early 60s coming off of Brown against the Board of Education in 1954 and some of the early reapportionment cases, one man, one vote, arguing that the court, he was looking for a way to justify in his own mind uh, Brown against the Board of Education and did so in the book, but argued that, it, you know, going back to a long line of scholars and some justices, Felix Frankfurter, Louis Brandeis, that the court did better when it did less. Mm -hmm. Bickle's an interesting character. He died before he was 50, tragically. It was one of the few times in the history of the Supreme Court that the court issued um, statements from justices about anyone other than mm. a non-justice. They don't do it for presidents. They don't do it for book authors. They did it for this book author and law professor, Alex Bickle. His book is around. It might be in rare books downstairs. Yeah. But the book, in some respects, um, is a playoff of, uh, of yeah. his. So, but your, your point is that the liberals are happy when the court renders a liberal decision and conservatives are happy when it renders a People conservative. People confuse outcomes right. with whether they ought to get involved. And I have found uh, in arguing this book uh, among friends at the dinner table at home um, and out in the world as this book has come out to try to get people to, to differentiate between the two. But most people assume that when I criticize Roe, I must somehow be anti-abortion. And they assume that when I criticize the gun control ruling or Citizens United, the campaign finance ruling, that I must have a certain view those ways. And that's not the point. And I, everybody has trouble with it. When I met with one of the liberal justices, these, all these conversations were on background. The condition is I can't say which, which of them I talked to. But one of the liberal justices and one of the conservative justices, when they asked me in 50 words to explain what the book was about again, because they didn't necessarily remember from the letter that I had sent, they each said to me, I half agree with you. Yeah. Now, these are the justices. And they're basically saying, well, your argument is correct for what the other guys do. And the point is to try to be principled. It's a hard argument, yeah. because if you like the outcome in the case, I like what Roe v. Wade did. I like what Heller did for gun, in the gun control ruling, striking down a law of the District of Columbia. Then it's hard to pull yourself back from that outcome and still argue that, no, maybe the court shouldn't have been the one to grant that constitutional right. Right, so the closest that, that anybody, I think, tries to come to some kind of principled basis for these interventions is this doctrine of originalism that uh, Scalia propounded, and it's something that, as I, I would say, a self-professed liberal, I don't find all that impressive. Can you talk a little bit about exactly? I think originalism is bunk. Okay, well, I, think I agree it, with you. Okay, I think we can move I on. Think it is, <laughs> I think it's total nonsense. Um, it sounds good. And the, the idea is that they're, they're trying to find out what, the, what was in the minds of the founders when they drafted language in the Constitution. Well, it, it, it's originalists and textualists try to do different things, and I don't want to put people to sleep. Um, okay. I started sleeping when I had to write those paragraphs sure. of the book. But textualists want to look at what the language meant at the time it was written. Right. Originalists are, are trying to figure out what everybody thought the words meant, um, regardless of what the words actually might have said, but trying to get in the minds of what Madison or Jefferson, or no. The problem with the argument is, Scalia would tell you that only when you have an idea like originalism are you, can you limit the, 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 the freelancing by, by justices. But of course, originalism is an interpretation by itself. It's no different than the so-called living constitution. And I didn't bring my pocket constitution with me, but I've looked through it. There's no clause in there that says, thou shall interpret me mm. based on what you thought the old white guys who wrote me 
taught in 1787. They don't say that. In fact, if you, if you look at the whole document, by using word clauses like equal protection of the laws and due process and no unreasonable searches and seizures, those are broad concepts. If they, if they wanted to write something specific throughout, and there are specifics, you have to be 35 years old to be president and so forth. If they wanted to write a list of regulations, mm -hmm. and some constitutions in the world do that, some state constitutions do that. If you wanted to write something with that degree of specificity, they would have. Instead, they chose general language. Why did they do so? Not because there was a ball game that night. There wasn't yeah. even baseball. <laughs> they did so, presumably, I and lots of folks smarter than I would argue, in hopes that subsequent generations would interpret what the, and apply what the words mean. So Scalia's argument, I think, is too cute by half. And mm. I would argue, not to be rude, but he's not here to defend himself, I think in 50 years, Scalia will have a lot less staying power mm. than he's given credit for now. I think you'll hear other justices who are given more credit for being important. Mm. Uh, one of the interesting portraits that you present in the book is, is Anthony Kennedy. I think a lot of people perceived him as being, uh, he was referred to as the swing justice, obviously, and moving back and forth, sort of tentatively, judiciously. Oh, and he liked to say, I don't swing. Yeah, and your, your comment about him, you said, no justice was more taken with the rhetoric of judicial supremacy, that, that he was more out there than any of the justices. So could you explain that a little bit? Because it, it was a, a kind of a new perception I had of him after reading the book. Most of the, most of the justices preach judicial restraint when it suits them. Restraint is what they do. Activists, activism is what the other guy does. Yes. Kennedy, at least, I thought was consistent. You didn't hear him talk about restraint very often. He was altogether thrilled with the seat he had. And he wasn't the deciding justice because he was most important or the best writer or the most thoughtful. He wasn't any of those things. He happened by luck to be in the middle in much the way 10 years earlier that Sandra Day O'Connor was. Um, and as one of his clerks put it, when you run the country, it's a pretty good gig. When you decide what the law, of what gay rights will be on same-sex marriage or other issues, when you decide where, which abortion regulation is constitutional and which one isn't, when you're the deciding vote on campaign finance, um, it's hard for that not to go to your head. And Anthony Kennedy, let the power go to his head. With, uh, without indicating who I talked to and who I didn't talk to, if you go into Justice Kennedy's chambers, it's a better looking place than where God holds court. <laughs> it, 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 uh, red, a, a big red rug with gold stars, he's the star of the show. If you go into the, Kang, the, the chambers of, for example, Elena Kagan, it looks like she moved in an hour earlier. You, you, you've seen better decorated Marriotts. There are no knickknacks. There are no photographs or whatnot. Um, I think Kennedy, I mean, why did Kennedy stay as long as he did? In part, because he wanted his successor named by a Republican. And for eight years, there was a Democrat in the White House. But part of it was, it was a great gig. Yeah. But I. I He is probably the justice, I think, who, who does least well in the book, because I think his, his arrogance comes through most, to my ears, came through um, most strikingly. Yeah. He, he is, they, they all have issues, but I think he, he's the calling card um, for arrogance. Mm. So what, what do you say to the people who say, well, look at, you, you talk about having the legislative branch resolve these controversial and complex issues, but we have gridlock. Nothing happens in Congress. Um, th there doesn't seem to be any uh, uh, bipartisan consensus on anything. So these are important issues that have to be resolved. Somebody should resolve them. Why, why can't it be the Supreme Court? What's wrong with that? That's exactly what some, that's exactly what some of the justices said to me in almost those words. But Again, I just checked my constitution, and 
there's no clause in there that says if you've got a moron in the White House and chuckleheads in Congress who don't get anything done, that it's up to judges to resolve. And the last time I checked, I mean, I'm not familiar with Pennsylvania state politics, but you, you don't want to be. I'm pretty sure <laughs> that those who you would criticize in Congress yeah. and in the Pennsylvania and New York legislatures were chosen by you and me. Mm -hmm. If you don't like your legislators, get different ones. Okay. And, the, and if we have gridlock, it's because that's what we chose. Oh. If you don't like gridlock, right. vote gridlock out of office. But I, I don't much like democracy. A perfect world would have me running it. But, but short of that, I would rather trust democracy than judges most of the time. And you're going to see that play out, I think, over the next generation. Mm -hmm. Assuming Kavanaugh is confirmed, you're going to see a more conservative, partisan, politicized court than you saw even mm -hmm. with Kennedy. For my partisan money, I'm not going to like those outcomes if the price for that critique is that I criticize rulings from the Warren Court or the Burger Court of the 70s and rulings like Roe v. Wade, mm -hmm. so be it. It seems to me you have to be consistent. And if all you're going to argue is real politics, if all you're going to argue is that the Supreme Court is a super legislature, it just acts as a proxy for, for the views of the president who put them there, why do you have a court? Right. Well, Donald Trump said we have to make sure that the Republican Party maintains control of the Supreme Court. He said it most explicitly, but I wouldn't... I, I think the thought balloon over Hillary Clinton's head, over Barack mm -hmm. Obama's head, uh, wouldn't be that different. I mean, he didn't... Elena Kagan is a first-rate scholar. Mm -hmm. He didn't put, Obama didn't put Kagan on the court because he thought she was a first-rate scholar. Mm -hmm. Any more than Bill Clinton put Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the court for that reason. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think, I, I, I give the Democrats more credit. I think Breyer, appointed by Clinton, um, was regarded as, as a craftsman, mm -hmm. as one of the better judges in the country. And as it turns out, if you look to see which member of the current court, for example, has deferred to Congress most often? It's Breyer. Mm -hmm. He is, in some respects, the most judicially conservative among them, even though he is put in the liberal camp yeah. when simpletons like me, writing in Newsweek or elsewhere, you know, describe it, Here are the, here's the left and here's the right. It's not always so simple. Right. We was, he was an aide to Ted Kennedy on the Senate Judiciary Committee and you know, came out of, of, of that background. Well, and, and he's criticized. You know, there are Democrats in Washington, including in the Obama White House, who were, dis who, who, who were disappointed by Breyer. Mm -hmm. They thought he wasn't RBG enough. Mm. And again, they're looking at, they're looking at outcomes. Mm -hmm. So if, if the answer is, uh, let, let's change this at the ballot box. Let's you know, get, vote for legislators that are going to uh, enact laws that, that you support. Uh, you have decisions like the Shelby County case, uh, which gutted a crucial provision of the Voting Rights Act. You have uh, the court, for now at least, has ducked the gerrymandering issue. So how, how, do we, how do we change the people who are representing us when the Supreme Court is deciding cases like these in recent years? Well, I mean, exactly. Welcome, welcome to the book. I mean, that's the problem. And the conservatives, who gutted the, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 in Shelby County right. and who threw out uh, DC's uh, very restrictive handgun law. Those justices are perfectly happy in other cases like same-sex marriage or abortion to say leave it up to democratic, democratically elected legislators right. and executives. Leave it to the democratic branches. But in those other areas, they throw out the will of the people and it's entirely hypocritical. Ultimately, the solution, if there is one, is to change the culture of the court. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that that is likely, but if you historically, the court reigns itself in 
at times when it sees itself getting out of step with public opinion. It did that most dramatically in 1937 when FDR tried to pack the court to pressure the court and the court switched gears and started upholding legislation um, of the New Deal. I think it is possible, not likely, it's not where I bet my money, but I think it is possible, assuming Kavanaugh is confirmed, assuming the court veers right, that you will see Chief Justice Roberts begin to assume more of an institutional role in the way he did, for example, in the Obama, first Obamacare ruling when the statute was upheld. I think it is possible that Roberts' affection for the court and respect for the court may in some cases get him to pull back and say, I don't want this institution in the center of the storm as often as it's been. And yet, remember, Roberts was the decisive vote in the voting rights case, in, in the gun control case. Roberts has twin political projects. He would call them constitutional projects. He doesn't like racial preferences. That's why he voted the way he did in the Voting Rights um, Act cases and other um, uh, election cases before it. And he doesn't like uh, a campaign finance regula regulation. Citizens United is, is an important case, but there may be other cases coming down the road that will further gut campaign finance. Mm -hmm. And the question I think with Roberts will be which, which is greater? And protecting the court yeah. or achieving the constitutional slash political ends that he wants. But I think Roberts is such as he is, and as the new swing justice, he's the All best right. hope the court has. All right, so ideologically, he's technically he's what at the center the of the middle. court. Right. He's not the center. Right. He's more conservative right. by any measure than, uh, than Kennedy was. Right. And I also think that Kavanaugh will veer more toward the institutionalism of Roberts than to the die-hard, uh, uh, flame-throwing movement conservative that Gorsuch has shown himself to be and that Clarence Thomas has been for 25 years. Yeah. I wouldn't have high hopes. And, and there are, of course, there are nuclear weapons that the other branches have. Whether they would use them, I don't know. But for example, just suppose that a Democrat wins the White House in 2020, and just suppose the Democrats control both houses of Congress. They could, with, an, with a law, it's got nothing to do with the Constitutional Amendment, they could decide to pack the court. They could decide to add two seats to the court, make it 11, get back for what was done to Merrick Garland, and you could have a liberal majority. Now, FDR's court packing plan was dead on arrival. It received bipartisan criticism. But you could argue, I think persuasively, the court is far more polarized now than it was back then. Could the Democrats play hardball that way? I'm inclined to think not. I think Republicans are better at knife fights than Democrats. Mm -hmm. But you hear Democrats talking that way. That's the only structural change you could make to the court. You're certainly not going to get term limits for justices. If you did, it would take many decades for them to kick in, but that re would require a constitutional amendment, and the party in power yeah. at the court would never agree to it. Yeah. And you mentioned an idea of 18-year uh, term limits, or uh, there, there's a suggestion that the court should be staffed on a rotating basis with federal appellate court judges. Uh, I mean, those ideas, nice are, ideas yeah. to talk about yeah, in, 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 in academic salons, which right. is not going to happen. But right. court packing, you could imagine that getting somewhere in 2021. That's the world we live in now. Right. I don't think likely, but, but I wouldn't bet a lot of money against it. Yeah. There's too much chatter about it. And, and the Democrats are so angry, justifiably so, over what was done to Garland, Obama's uh, pick in 2016, uh, who wasn't even given a hearing by the Republicans. I, you could see an angry and motivated Democratic base uh, pushing uh, for a packed court. Mm -hmm. Of uh, course, Biden has to win in, in 2020, and they have to take back the, the House and the Senate. Well it, it, well, it would have to be a veto, or filibuster-proof majority, probably, no, in the Senate. Well, you just get rid of the filibuster. Yeah, okay. They've gotten rid of the filibuster for, the, for federal judges. If, if, and the Supreme if, Court now. If you don't, right. If you don't believe in norms, yes. then, I mean, I think that's a bad thing, but... I could understand it. Yeah. 
Well, you talked about the Republicans being better, better at a knife fight. I, that's because they bring a gun to the knife fight. Well, I, 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 I mixed my metaphors. Right. Thank okay. you. <laughs> Thank you for reading my book. Okay. <laughs> I, I will tell you, you know, one of the problems with writing a book, <clears throat> it, it takes a while. Yes. And about a year into the book, probably because I didn't want to write that evening, I remembered some anecdote about John Roberts and Merrick Garland. Merrick Garland clerked for a very famous lower federal court judge in New York named Henry Friendly. And Friendly asked Roberts, excuse me, Friendly asked Garland, I need a clerk for next year, find the smartest Harvard student. You can find. And he called, Garland called people he knew at Harvard, and they all said, there's a kid in here named John Roberts. So John Roberts got the clerkship with Friendly the next year, and Roberts owes his career in part to Merrick Garland. Well, I remember that story one night when I was writing about either one of them, but I couldn't remember who told me the story. Yeah. So I emailed a bunch of people, law professors, some judges, and said, nah, I didn't say that story sounds like a good story. I finally figured out where the story came from. I had written it in my book 100 pages earlier. <laughs> I searched my book. I had already written those paragraphs, so you know, it's... It's a problem. It's one of the problems with books over journalism. You don't really remember what you said. <laughs> I said that? Okay. Well, I have many more questions I could ask David, but this is not just a conversation between the two of us, and we want to give the audience an opportunity to ask questions. And I see uh, several of my lawyer friends and colleagues in the audience, so perhaps they have questions. Alex has a microphone, which he will pass question, around. Just go raise ahead and raise your hand. your hand, and I'll run around. Okay. Come in. Second row. Thanks. Thanks for writing the book. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> I, I guess most people would agree that they'd rather be a dictator than have a democracy. But I don't think anybody really wants a democracy either because it's majority rule. All you got to do is get one more vote. And that's all political. Lawyers, like yourselves, understand that the Constitution limits the government and protects minority rights so that it can't be political. It has to be apolitical and let the politics to the executive and the Congress. This is what's in the news every single day now. So I don't think packing's gonna work because then the next Republican will get to two houses sooner or later and they'll turn it into 13 justices or whatever. We're going to need a bigger building. Yeah. <laughs> and then we'll have sub-courts, I guess. But what about this? You could argue that at some point, both sides would agree to disarm. Well, I don't believe that either. Yeah. Uh, you don't get Russia and the United States disarming. But here's an idea. See if you can chop this apart. Require that the nominees answer every question. Require they answer every single question. You have the same problem. How? The party in power doesn't want answers. They want to adjourn at 9 a.m. and have lunch. I You're know. Never going to, both parties are never going to agree to force answers because the party in power doesn't want answers. I also am not sure that answers would solve the problem. Well, it would answer the questions of separation of power because then the senators say, what is your position on a, the involvement of a court in a political issue? And once people are on the record of their mental I don't know. Process, it depends on the specific case. And until I know what the case is and the litigants, you all and, the I've read, cases. and I've read the brief, huh? You required them to answer. A Supreme Court justice can recuse him or herself or refuse to recuse him or herself right. from every case that comes up. If they have that power, to say, I don't care if I answered that, I'm not recusing, no one will make that. So if the Senate has rules that say, you must answer, you can't say, that's a matter that may come before me. You must answer, it tips you off onto the mental process of separation of powers. So, I mean, I think that's a worthy I topic. would endorse that proposal. It, will, it is no more realistic than to happen. a lot well, of other Just proposals. one last comment then. So you're presuming then, and maybe rightly so, that the powers on both sides want to continue to have politicized Supreme Court. 
as long as it's politicized for them. Yeah, but if they both know that neither side is going to ever give, why wouldn't they agree? You're to expecting foresight on the part of of, of legislature. I mean, they can't think ahead to dinner. I I, <laughs> I thought you were going to ask a different question. I I I'm not, I don't argue in this book for an impotent court. The court should be protecting minority rights. And I spend a chapter in the book talking about why I thought Brown v. Board of Education was correct. And if you look at the Constitution, which, I mean, I think originalism is nonsense, but the words do mean something. And the, and the rights protected in the First Amendment, freedom of the press, freedom of speech, the rights in the Fourth Amendment, no unreasonable searches and seizures, and so forth, those are minority rights. By definition, the majority is not going to protect them. Congress isn't, state legislatures aren't going to protect the rights of, of, of terrorists, of murderers, of communists, of white supremacists. The only branch of government, structurally, that could possibly protect those rights is the Supreme Court. And I have no problem um, with that. Those should not be subject to democratic will. And you mentioned the partisan gerrymandering case. You know, the Supreme Court intervenes, including this year, they intervene in a key labor uh, a, a labor union case, an outrageous, an outrageous abuse yeah. uh, of their authority, reversing a, dis a unanimous decision of 40, 40 years, years ago. ago right. But in partisan gerrymandering, the justices ducked the issue, as they've done many other times over the last 20-some-odd years. Partisan gerrymandering is where the ins shape the district so the outs can't gain power. That's what ins do. You can't expect the ins in most jurisdictions to draw the maps that allow others to maybe beat the incumbents. That's right. exactly when the Supreme Court ought to step in. Now, it does step in when there's racial gerrymandering, but they have long said and continue to say partisan gerrymandering, that's up to the Democratic branches. So, so I think the court intervenes when it shouldn't and doesn't intervene when it should. But I wouldn't argue for a second that the court, in some instances, ought to be protecting minority rights. And minority rights doesn't just mean African-American or Hispanic. There are all sorts of minority rights. So, and so that one of the difficult cases, I, I talk about the same-sex marriage case in the book, and, and, and I argue that it was probably correctly decided, but that it should have not been decided when it was decided. It would have been better for the state legislatures and lower courts to deal, to wrestle with this issue for more years, and then maybe for the Supreme Court to ratify a national um, consensus. I thought that was a close case. The reason it was hard for me is gays and lesbians historically uh, have been discriminated against, have been persecuted, but their political victories in some legislatures, in state referenda, are dramatic over the last 10, 15 years. So it's harder to argue that they are in the same category as other minority groups. Um, they hardly, uh, in many states in the South, they are hardly um, uh, 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 treated well, legislatively or, or out in public. But in that case in particular, I had the most trouble figuring out what to do. Same thing with campaign finance. I thought that Citizens United, I thought, had a pretty good First Amendment argument. I just thought that on balance, if it was a close case, let Congress decide. Mm -hmm. Any other questions? Question. There's one in front yes. row. Front, front row you got one there and one here. I'm disappointed you don't want to know any gossip about any of the justices. Well, I had a gossip question, but I'll save it. You're restraining yourself. Well, yeah. Ask the gossip well, the gossip question, I, it's a fact. Not gossip, by the way. No, it's, it's, it's a tidbit. It's a tidbit. It, but uh, this is a good example of the fascinating uh, information in this book. It's it's not just a, it's, it's not, it's it's not for legal scholars. It's into the quirks of the justices. Okay, so here's. It's not gossip. So here's the question. Uh, talk about uh, why, maybe not the only reason, but a reason why Sandra Day O'Connor was the deciding vote in Bush versus Gore. Well, you know, you work on a book for, this book was two years, and you always hope to come across something in interviews, in the Library of Congress that you really didn't know before and that makes your, your, your hair stand on end. And I found out that several, Senator O'Connor, 5-4, Bush v. Gore, in favor of Bush. Uh, 
stop the recount in Florida. Mm -hmm. O'Connor said a decade after the ruling, you know, maybe we shouldn't have intervened. We should have just let Florida and Congress work their will. That's a decade after the fact that she expressed some misgivings. I report in the book that a few months, few months after Bush v. Gore, her husband at a charity dinner told the table, you know why Sandra, who was not at the table, you know why Sandra voted as she did? She did because she wanted to leave the court, but it would only leave the court if a Republican was in the White House. She wanted to care for me. My health isn't great. She knew it was wrong at the time she voted. I gave O'Connor a chance to comment um, on that anecdote. There is no, the, um, no uh, the, the response was no comment. And that, that as you correctly point out, represents mm -hmm. a, a dishonesty or corruption um, that's problematic. And although, you know, is it any different, is it, apart from the admission told to her husband who's mm -hmm. no longer alive, is it fundamentally different than what you think the other members of the court did in that case? You can't prove it but I don't think so any more than I think those in, in the minority um, voted the way they did. It's easy to laud the minority in Bush v. Gore, but if the case was styled Gore v. Bush and pick a, a state in control of Republicans, would the court have, would all the nine justices just not have switched to the other side? I'm hardly confident. Yeah. I'm inclined to think Breyer and Souter might have been principled, but the others, it's really hard to be principled. And that's why it's often best to not get involved. And Louis Brandeis, a famous liberal justice from a century ago, argued that the most important thing we do, justices do at the court, is not deciding. And many people think the Supreme Court just has to, has to get involved in these cases. They control their own docket. They get 8,000 petitions a year. They choose the 70 they want to hear. It's entirely up to them. Mm -hmm. And even if, now sometimes if they might take a case and just say, you know, that's not a constitutional issue, throw out the appeal. But even if they dis decided not to hear a case, which would result in a lower court stand, a lower court opinion being the law in that jurisdiction, it's, a, it's different than having one decision govern the country. And there is benefit in some areas of the law for different courts over time, mm -hmm. a lot of time, to, to try to wrestle with an issue. And out of that push-pull, give and take, of many different lower court judges, you might emerge a consensus that might work in tandem with what legislatures are doing. I mean, it's one of the problems with Roe v. Wade. The country was dealing with abortion. Many legislature, legislators were, legislatures were liberalizing abortion laws. And far uh, 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 better scholars than, than me have argued that if you would have let that play out, you would have achieved a kind of national consensus on abortion, always subject to the next term of the legislature, which could change the law. But you would, have you would not have the storm that you have um, now, and you might never have had the radicalization of the Republican Party. You could, and I try in the book, you could draw almost a straight line between the transformation of the Republican Party from Rockefeller Republicans, who held sway in places like New York and Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. into the radical right dominated by Ronald Reagan. And I would argue that's probably a bad thing. One, <coughs> one phrase you used was change the culture of the court. And some might think that's a naive question for to consider, uh, creativity is imagining what no one else has imagined. Maybe we can do some imagining here. And this would be in the context of, for example, the conservatives now having spent about four decades grooming people through the Federalist Society. Yeah. Uh, and I even mentioned Democratic counterparts to that, but they haven't had the success that the Federalist uh, what might be a, anybody could answer, to change the culture of the 
it's hard to change political culture. Maybe you write a book. Maybe you get a senator to ask the question in the next confirmation hearings about what the role of the court is. But I think the change largely has to come from within. And most of the justices on the court, except for perhaps, except for all, all of them on an occasion or two, but I think apart from Breyer and maybe Roberts, he did, he, he did act in a restrained way in the Obamacare ruling to great effect. You don't see a whole lot of it. And I'm limited in being able to quote justices by name given the terms of, of me talking to them, but that kind of humility, self-doubt, belief in minimalism is not in vogue. And with some of them, it's, it's, it's downright laughable. Uh, you know, Alito gave a private talk, which somebody gave me a copy of, where he, he's, he's asked to talk about stare decisis, precedent, the power of prior rulings that should be honored. It shouldn't just be a matter of getting new membership on the court. Well, it's discussed in confirmation hearings all the time, including with, with Kavanaugh. And Alito, quite brazenly, just belittled the idea. He says it's like, it's like wine. Sometimes old wine is good and sometimes old wine is rotten. Um, and Thomas doesn't believe in, notwithstanding whatever he said at his confirmation hearing, doesn't believe in the value of precedent at all unless it's precedent about actual words in the Constitution. His views on cases that he would claim are invented by the left, like Roe v. Wade, for example, don't deserve to be honored at all. You know, precedent is largely a dead letter because what's settled law, as Brett Kavanaugh referred to it, is settled until you get five mm -hmm. votes to unsettle it. Well, you quote Brennan in the, in the, uh, the book. Well, I mean, in, in the quotes page, uh, um, I, I quote Brennan, who I spent time with years ago when I was, um, you know, a young journalist. Brennan was famous for explaining how the Supreme Court worked. And don't mistake him for an elfin Irish politician. He was a very smart yeah. fellow um, uh, and student of the law. But he would say, with five votes here, you can do anything. And that's kind of a cynical view of what the court is about. A footnote to that line of his, I think it was Breyer who said that Brennan had great authority on the court uh, and legitimately goes down to one of the great justices. But the notion of how good he was to marshal those five votes is overstated because he often started with seven. <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's a different membership right. um, of the court. And horse trading at the court is largely overwritten. The idea that somebody with personality and, and, and persuasive oratory can win over votes at their private conference when they vote on cases is overstated. They, they mostly operate as nine separate law firms. Mm -hmm. And the opportunity for give and take is pretty, um, is, is pretty slim. I don't think the nominators would describe it that way, but ladies and gentlemen, please meet Brett Kavanaugh. Or Neil Gorsuch. Neil Gorsuch right. Or Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Or, I mean, Soto Sotomayor was chosen in part, explicitly so, for demographic reasons. But Obama and his White House staff had a pretty good idea of how she would vote. The notion that, that justices surprise their presidents is vastly overstated. David Souter appointed by, uh, by first George Bush, did surprise. And most famously, Brennan and Earl Warren surprised Eisenhower. But the last five or six nominees, they are what was, what, what's advertised. You can blame that on better and more cynical vetting by presidents. I mean, David Souter was picked for the Supreme Court by President Bush in 10 minutes because his first choice, a guy named Ken Starr, yeah. 
he was all set to name Ken Starr, and Bush's attorney general, Dick Thornburg, said, if you appoint Starr, I will resign on the, on, the, on the North Lawn of the White House today. Such was the animus between them. They had worked at the Justice Department, and Bush said, I don't want to be attacked by the press for screwing around with the nominee, and they quickly settled on the next person on the list who was being pushed by the White House chief of staff, because he knew, Sununu, Sununu, knew, um, uh, Suter from um, New Hampshire. Yeah. But they don't surprise. I argue in the book, you can blame senator presidents on that, but in the first instance, I blame the court. The reason vetting is more cynical now is not because we have better presidents, we don't. It's because the court itself has raised the stakes. When President Bush put Souter on the court, and when Earl War and when Eisenhower put Warren and Brennan on the court, the stakes were a lot lower. Yes, Brown v. Board, Brown against the Board of Education had come down a few years before Brennan was selected, but the, the court was simply not involved in American life to the extent that it is now. So the court, the court con controls um, that outcome. And you know, uh, Harvey asks, um, the, uh, asks the question, well, if not Congress mm. and state legislatures, who else but the court? And I think that's the prevailing wisdom of the court. But I think sometimes you have to say, if the people chose these legislators, they're going to have to live with them. It's not for unelected justices, umpires, if you will, to be involved. Mm. Got a question in the third row? I have to give shorter answers, sorry. <laughs> Your answers are great. Uh, the gentleman in the uh, first I'm row filibustering. Did, uh, did mention about uh, the, uh, uh, the Federalist Society, which uh, you know, in reading the uh, at least the first part of your book, uh, you make reference to the Federalist Society and how much right. of an influence that they have had with many of the justices. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, before even being considered uh, as a uh, uh, as a Supreme Court justice. So, if you can elaborate on their influence, because uh, in the first part of your book, where it reads uh, a quote from Alexander Hamilton, the Federalist Number Seventy Eight. The judiciary may truly be said to have had neither force nor will, but merely judgment of which you mentioned here in, uh, in, in, in this form. The Federalist Society was not, uh, was, not um, uh, 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 was not exercising any of its um, influence at that time. Uh, and then the uh, second one is uh, when you mentioned that, uh, and if you can clarify this, did you mention that uh, the Supreme Court justices should be considered from federal appellate court justices. And uh, how would that compare with uh, Chief Justice Warren and his appointment years ago? Oh, no, I would, on the second part, I throw out the idea, and it's not original, that maybe you could staff the Supreme Court randomly from the chief judges of lower courts. That would really depoliticize it because then you're not handpicking someone whose views you think will lead to the right outcomes in this controversial case or the other. But I fully endorse the idea of the court not being filled solely with judges. John Roberts thinks that's good. John Roberts, has, the Chief Justice, has explicitly said having legal technicians, as it were, is a good plan. I think the court was a better place when it had a former governor, Earl Warren, a former senator, Hugo Black, a former uh, um, uh, law professor, Felix Frankfurter. The current court is all judges except for Elena Kagan. Elena Kagan uh, was, appoint had, was appointed when she was Solicitor General, the Chief Advocate for the, for the right. United States before the Supreme Court. Before that, she was Harvard Law Dean. I think the court would be a better place. The only serious non-judge candidate over the last 20 years was Mario Cuomo. Bill Clinton wanted to put Mario Cuomo on the court and offered him the seat. He, he dilly-dallied, ultimately decided he didn't want it. Clinton had his characteristic problems making a decision, and eventually that's the seat that went to RBG. Um, I, I, have, I have to, the Federalist Society, 
certainly has this huge role advising Don McGahn, White House counsel, and President Trump. But I have to say, I think the brief, the argument against criticizing the Federalist Society is overstated. All presidents rely on outside counsel and outside advisors. The fact that it's been outsourced, if you will, this time to this conservative organization, to me isn't the problem. And, and listen, the first President Bush probably hadn't read a Supreme Court case in his life. Um, he's going to have to rely on experts. President Trump probably can't spell Supreme Court. <laughs> so he's going to have to rely on experts. Obama and Clinton both had taught constitutional law and were versed in this stuff and soaked it up. And when they were vetting a potential nominees, they had read the opinions of, of lower court judges who were considered. So um, I, I'm less concerned about the federal side. Let me just say, point of personal privilege, I am annoyed at the federal side only because the Wall Street Journal review of my book, yes, authors read reviews, lauded my even-handedness until I criticized conservative rulings of the Supreme Court. <laughs> and I thought the thing was hilarious until I looked up who the writer was. He teaches at a law school you've never heard of. That is an outpost for Federalist Society members. He is a Federalist Society groupie. And the day after the review came out, he testified for Kavanaugh <laughs> at the hearings. <laughs> but never mind. OK. Do we have a I question? I really do have thick skin. One second. Two quick ones. One, do the justices, did you learn whether the justices felt an obligation toward the presidents that appointed them? And then that's- No. Okay. The, my no, and, 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 and why would they? After they say nice things after they're appointed, once they're confirmed, they're done. After, because the president who appointed them in two or four or eight years going to be gone. And the justice is still going to be there. Now, they are human. I report in the book that Chief Justice Roberts was enraged that the Republican candidates in 2016 were going to count on him yeah. for his ruling in Obamacare. I thought it was sort of, it was, I thought it was neat that he, that he was a human being, that he, would, that he acknowledged to someone um, that he didn't like being treated that way. But remember, whether Trump has gone in two months or six years, Chief Justice Roberts is going to be the Chief Justice. Right. He's probably going to be the Chief Justice in 20 years. So I don't think they have any loyalty, conscious or subconscious, to the presidents who appoint them. I, I would give them that much credit. And I think they all, with maybe one exception, attempt to do their job as they see fit. I think they are operating in good faith. They're so, just wrong. So what bothers you more? the notion that the Supreme Court has flexed its muscles and it's elevated itself as a uh, branch of government, or that it's, as you said, nine separate law firms. One would sit back and say, it's nine really smart people debating and analyzing and discussing very complex issues with the hope it come out with the right answer. So if that were my choice, the former. I don't know that the lack of debate means much. They spend a lot of time reading the briefs, in differing extents, talking to their law clerks, wrestling with the issues. I, I describe in the book that in the first Obamacare case, Roberts, who knew he was going to be the swing vote, he had four on this side and four on this side, he initially voted at conference to strike down the statute. So the reporting that came out quickly thereafter, that he changed his mind, was correct. What hadn't come out is that Roberts went back to Chambers immediately and assigned drafts of an opinion to one, two different drafts, to two different law clerks, one which would uphold the statute based on an interpretation of the taxing clause and one that would go with his initial view. So Roberts, to his credit, knew the case was tough. I think he understood at some level that there was a real politic aspect. Of this. Should the Supreme Court really be in the vortex of, of, of uh, a president?
presidential election in that year. But I think he, in good faith, wanted to see his clerks wrestle with um, uh, the question. And until you see it in writing, you don't know if it's going to be convenient. There's, a, a, and there's an expression at the Supreme Court, and probably among all judges, you want to see if it writes. Sometimes the argument just doesn't write. So I think it was an example, I think Roberts' greatest moment, one of, the high, one of the great moments in the court's history in the last 25 years, that A, he, I think, approached it in good faith, trying to wrestle with the case on its own terms, but also acted as a politician in the best sense. There is something to be said for the court acting politics in deciding when it should get involved. You know, there, there, there's a famous case, you saw the movie, Loving against, uh, v. Virginia, where the Supreme Court unanimously and correctly threw out anti-miscegenation laws in the country. That was 1967. That's 13 years after Brown. Why did it take the court 13 years to throw out those horrific laws? They had an opportunity some years earlier to take a similar case and rule that way. And the court decided, it, it, there's not a lot written you know, in their papers, but there was a view within the court that too much too soon, a phrase that Ruth Bader Ginsburg has used in criticizing Roe v. Wade, saying the court would probably move too fast too soon in Roe. There's an argument to be made that even though striking down the, the, the laws that Loving Virginia struck down in 1967, might not have played as well nationally in 1957 or 1959. Does that mean the court was right to wait? Interracial couples who were jailed in the intervening years would of course argue that they were wrong. But the court sometimes has these larger institutional or political views that it has to play. Saying legislature, do what you're supposed to do. Unless the answer is, um, they're not doing it. It's time for us to stand up and, and protect those minority rights. You know, Brown v. Board, Brown against the Board, an, a, a great moment for the Supreme Court, 1954. W maybe it would have been greater in 1953 or 1952. Now, Thurgood Marshall, then a litigator, long before he was a justice, had this incrementalist approach where throughout the 1940s he was arguing cases and gradually building to this ine inexorable result in Brown. But should he have argued it more quickly? A, a, a lot of black students in segregated schools in the South would argue yes. But I'm only pointing out that it, it, it can be an open question. It's it, doing the right thing, the first <coughs> opportunity you have to do it, may not always be the best thing to do in the larger scheme of things if you believe in the larger scheme of things. Mm -hmm. Is this true at all recently in the gay rights where the word marriage came out? And even those that were, were liberal weren't quite sure how to work with the word marriage. And so civil unions, and we saw that debate. Now nobody cares. But when it first came out, if the Supreme Court had ruled that gay marriage is permitted, I, I think that would not have gone over well. It's hard to argue, given what's happened since Obergefell, the gay rights decision, it's hard to argue any backlash. There was no role, there was, an, there was backlash to Roe v. Wade quickly enough, and there's been backlash for 45 years and counting. There was no such backlash to the gay rights, um, uh, uh, the same-sex marriage ruling. So you can take away from that lack of backlash and say, you know, sometimes there's backlash and sometimes there isn't, but the court ought to do the right thing in each instance. I think the outcome in Roe and the outcome in Obergefell were the outcomes I would support politically. But I would argue that as a matter of real life consequences, the harm from Roe um, continues to color confirmation hearings, it distorts presidential elections, that on balance, um, it was not good for the country. Now, I'm a man, easy for me to say. But you know, if you look at polling in the 2016 election, 20 or, I forgot, 20, I think it was 21% of Trump voters couldn't stand Trump. They didn't like him, they didn't like his temperament, they didn't like his politics, they didn't like him personally. But they held their nose 
and said, I'm, we're voting for him because he'll staff the Supreme Court with people we like, and, that's, and that will accomplish the greater good. That's true. The blame with that lies with all of us who turn to the Supreme Court uh, to solve issues. If the court wasn't in the maelstrom on so many issues, then voters in 2016 would not have felt, vote, might not have voted for Trump. Now, there were almost the same percentage of voters mm -hmm. who said, I'm voting for Hillary for yeah. the same reason, but it wasn't, it wasn't the same. And mm -hmm. I know anecdotally, I meet, peop I meet people daily and weekly, my own dentist, you know, <laughs> who, who say, the court, the court, the court, the court. That's it. And that oughtn't, it seems to me that should not be how he took presidential, uh, how he took presidents. It also, I think you can argue, and what Congress is terrible. We've covered that, mm -hmm. right? But one of the reasons it's, it's terrible is because it's enfeebled. One of the reasons in, I mean, it's partially enfeebled because it's made of, of a bunch of morons. That's fine. But one of the reasons they're enfeebled is because they understand why should we get involved in this or that controversial issue when they're just going to resolve it across the street of the Supreme Court. In Bush v. Gore, which we started out with today, the Constitution, the 12th Amendment, explicitly delegates to Congress the task of resolving a disputed presidential election. And there's a statute that further spells it out, a statute passed after the Hayes-Tilden disputed election of 1876. But when the case came before the Supreme Court, which they didn't have to take, neither the House nor the Senate even filed a brief with the court and said, excuse us, justices, that's our job. You need to stay away. And when I, I wrote a book about this uh, on, on the 2000 election, unfortunately it came out on 9-10. The book had a short shelf life. Right. Um, I talked to some justices and senators, back, and the senators and congressmen, why would we get involved in that political mess when the justices were gonna resolve it? That's the problem. Unfortunately, we are out of time. We do need to wrap up. Uh, David is going to stick around for a book signing, and he'll answer more, more of your questions. But can we give a round of applause for David and Harvey? Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, David. Thank you, Harvey. Uh, we have books available for purchase, so uh, support David.